the more magical aspects of writing is the ability to, through just a few scribbles, actually invent characters who seem as true to life as real people. But if our task is to create characters that jump off the page and into our consciousness, how do we make sure they are different or well-rounded or interesting or funny or sweet or sad or just weirdos who are capable of talking to each other, moving around, and having their own complex interior lives? At today's 11th hour, we're happy to have the always brilliant Kate Asmengren, who will discuss who these people are and what they might do for our stories. Kate teaches writing at Coe College, and her plays include Flyer, Rule of Nines, Our Lady of Route 52, and The Ballad of Cowgirl Christie. She holds an annual writing residency at Tower Hill School in Delaware, where her adaptation of Madeline Langle's a Wrinkle in Time was produced. Kate's middle grade novel, Ashley Templeton is Ruining My Life, was published just a few years ago by Foreverland Press, and let's welcome her here today. What do all these numbers mean in here? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's not a rating or something. <laughs> um, so yesterday in my playwriting class, we discussed how sometimes you know you go to the theater and they say in this evening's performance, the role usually played by somebody you really want to see is being played by an understudy. And people all go, oh no. And, but somehow uh, I think uh, an audience gets kind of behind that understudy, right? They really want them to do well. So here's the thing. Uh, you know these folders that you get when, you're, when you check in and stuff? I have a lot of these, I've done, I have my 19th year at the festival, so I have a lot of these. So my notes are in a folder just like this, <laughs> which is currently on my dining room table. But I can tell you, for example, where to find things on the university campus. And... So um, I, I do have a PowerPoint that I hope is going to help, but one of the problems with me not having notes is I could anything can happen. So, <laughs> bear with me. Um, a lot of writers start with a story and some start with a situation and some start with a theme and I almost always start with character and character relationships because to me that's, that's the, the basis of everything I do. Conflict comes from character and dialogue comes from character and the story comes from the characters. So creating interesting three-dimensional characters has always been my goal when I'm writing. Um, See, I already forgot what I was going to say. And I just rehearsed this this morning. That's the thing. I read it to the dog. <laughs> he will tell you it was brilliant. Um, as a playwright, I need to make sure that the characters I create are um, characters that actors will be interested in playing. Because if the actors aren't interested in them, if they don't find anything to work with, then I'm just writing a play for myself. Um, and I've had a couple of times, I went to a, a writing retreat. See, this was not in my notes, and now anything could happen. I went to a writing retreat, uh, women uh, here at Hedgebrook on uh, Whidbey Island in, in the um, Puget Sound. You get a chance to go, it's fantastic. They bring your lunch to you, you have your own cottage. But um, I was there, and I happened to be there, there was a, an, an equity actor who was there. She was in one of the other cottages, she was working on a novel, and I had a play I was working on that I really loved. And we decided one night after dinner, a lot of times, a glass of wine or two, we would have we would uh, gather together in the farmhouse and read stuff. So we read my play one night. And I thought this is great because I've got a real life, real actress to read this. And afterwards, she said, "You know, 
character is not very interesting. I don't, I, if I played this role, I don't know what I'd, what I'd really do with her. And, and uh, I had to go back and really pay attention to that, because without actors, I'm kind of out of luck. Much like if I don't have my notes. So, <laughs> really dry mouth today. <laughs> I did remember the water, of course. <laughs> and I do have a PowerPoint, so hopefully that will kind of keep me on track. But again, who knows? Uh, so I talked to some writing friends and uh, other people teach writing to kind of identify problems that people have when they show up a lot with character. And uh, um, here they are. Um, so the first thing is um, those characters who we don't believe because they're just too good. And it's uh, who grew up watching westerns on TV. So remember that Matt Dillon was always good and uh, Roy Rogers was always good and uh, what was the deal with Paladin? Remember Paladin? He was kind of bad though, wasn't he? Because he wore all black. So that's how we knew. But he was he was for he was like a gunslinger for hire, right? But he wasn't bad, was he? He was bad? I don't remember this at all. Um, clearly I didn't research that far. So uh, I think audiences now don't buy that so much. Nobody is all good or all bad. We just that doesn't happen. Um, who's ever watched Dexter? I quit watching it because it's just icky. But um, so Dexter's a pretty good dad, right? He works for the police department. It's a good thing. He loves his sister, um, and oh, and he's a serial killer, by the way. Um, but we kind of know through the course of, of the show what, how that happened and why he is like that, and um, why he has his dark passenger, which is a phrase I always loved. That he Sometimes I, today I feel like I might have brought my dark passenger along to me. Um, so we, we know why he's like that. We know he's not perfect, but he also does some good stuff. Uh, likewise, really good people, we just don't buy it. Somebody's really good. Uh, nobody is flawless. We don't really like flawless people. We don't want to spend time with flawless people. Why? Because all of us are flawed. Think for a second about the person you love most in the whole world. In some cases, it might be yourself. That's um, mine. Does that person have flaws? Of course, yeah. Um, if the person you had in mind was yourself, I would like to suggest yes, they probably do have flaws. Um, so think about uh, giving the, the the characters we really love, giving them some really good flaws, believable flaws, not just like oh, I sometimes I don't tie my shoe. I mean they. Really believable flaws that we that we understand that we appreciate because we have them too. It's a surprise to me. What's next? Um, uh, I see this in plays more. I, I don't know that I see it a lot in fiction, but sometimes there'll be a character who's sort of the main character, and then they have a bunch of friends, and we get really excited when the friends are there. When we read about the friends, and then when it's the person themselves, what? Not so interesting. Like, I, apparently all my examples are from television. But anybody watch Grey's Anatomy still? Admit it. Come on, admit it. You can admit it. Who's ever watched Grey's Anatomy in your life? Who's the least interesting person in Grey's Anatomy? Meredith Grey, the person the show's named after. Exactly. You've got Callie, who was, uh, used to live in the hospital basement and danced around in her underwear. You've got uh, what's Alex, who can fly off the handle at any second and, and is really unpredictable and I think actually is from Iowa, according to the, his bio. Um, not that those two are connected, but it could be. Um, uh, you've got uh, Arizona, who lost a, used to roller skate, and now she lost, she lost a leg in a plane crash. They're all more interesting, except for Meredith. You don't want... Um, 
You don't want your audience or your reader to say, oh, there's that guy, again, when that guy is the one the story's about. You know, it's like, I can't wait for your friends to show up because you're not very interesting. So make sure that your, your friends don't. It, part of it, I think, is because we don't, sometimes don't develop those characters as fully, so it's, it's easy to give them some, like, a quirk or some funny habit or some mannerism. Um, and then it becomes like all the quirky characters are really fun, and the rest of you know the main ones like eh, we don't really care. So um, there's also a, a thing I've seen too with writers where a face that we write about ourselves a fair amount, right? So there'll be this happens more with college age writers. No offense to any of you who might be college age. They have four or five friends who they hang out with all the time. So their character has four or five friends who they hang out with all the time. And they all kind of do the same thing in the story. They, nobody, they all serve the same purpose. And then I'll suggest to them, well, maybe if those four or five friends all serve the same purpose, you could get rid of a couple of them, which is horrifying to them. Because like I've suggested, please get rid of your friends. And, uh, but be careful that there aren't people. Make sure everybody has a point. Sometimes it helps to chart it out. What's that person's point in the story? What are they doing there? What, what, what point do they serve? What's, what's, why are they there? And if they're not there... Sudden way, and it's painful. I know this is painful. Has anybody had to take a character, like get rid of a character completely? And it might be a character you liked, or in my case, it was a character that I think was very much based on myself. <laughs> and I had, I had a play, and there was a character who was kind of, she was hilarious and forgot her notes and didn't say anything. <laughs> um, but very organized. I mean, I, really, I honestly, I rehearsed this today. I have all my notes. I've had a few days. I used to be a stage manager, and I'm like, this is horrifying to me. Um, if you've ever been around stage managers, not like us to forget things. Usually I have a lot of mine. I just want to call my mother. Um, <laughs> she'd say, well, why didn't you put it in your car? Why didn't you? <laughs> what was I talking about? <laughs> um, oh, here we So this character I really liked in this play, we did a reading of it. It was when I was in grad school. And the person who read that character was really good. She did. She acted off Broadway. She was uh, um, had I think nominated for an Obie Award, which is the off-Broadway kind of Tony thing. Um, she was really, really good, and I thought it's so great. She's going to read for me, and afterwards she said, "I don't get what that character is doing there." And I thought, "Well, clearly there's something wrong with her." The title of the York and somehow that's her mind. So uh, there were, a theater wanted to do a reading of it, and they, and they did a reading, and it, it, it was really nice reading. Really good. Again, really experienced actors, and the, the person who played it well said, I don't get why that character is there. And, and then you have to start paying attention. I mean, two people. So she had to go away, and it was sad. And I, and I took out all of her lines and saved them all in the file by themselves. <laughs> They're not like in a file. It's, I can't remember her name, but it was sad to say farewell. I kind of wrote some notes ahead of time. I can't really read them. Um, oh, kind of related to this uh, is the idea of creating characters who are unique on their own uh, and not just because they're quirky, because then it becomes like we've gone to some sort of quirk festival. And they, you know, they're, but to, uh, to think about uh, how characters talk, how that makes them unique, how they look, how does that make them unique. And I wanted to show you a clip from um, a play. Does anybody know Lettuce and Luggage by Peter Schaffer? So it, uh, um, Margaret Tyzak and Maggie Smith are both in it. They both won Tonys for this. Whenever I show this to a younger audience, they always say, oh, Professor McGonagall, but she actually has done things other than Harry Potter. Um, in fact, I think he wrote this role for her. So here's the setup, which I think this is from the Tony Awards, and there's a guy who tells you a little bit at the beginning. So 
Um, uh, Maggie Smith plays a character who's worked, if you've been to England, you have all those manor houses everywhere. And if you go there with my mother, you have to go to all of them. <coughs> oh. um, and there's usually somebody there who tells you, here's what happened in this house, you know, all through the years of the people who lived here. And this, yeah, yeah. Um, so Maggie Smith is one of those people. And she, uh, because the house is kind of boring, she makes up stories about what happened there. So it's just, she, and they get more and more elaborate. And she has a little soup bowl, and she stands by the door and gets tips when people leave. And well, the trust that owns the house has found out about this. I mean, have called her in uh, to to discuss it. Pay really close attention to the to the language uh, from the two women. Uh, also, look at the way they're dressed. If, if this is a this is a thing with dialogue. If you look, if you just took one of their lines out of there, you would be able to tell who said it. It's pretty it's pretty incredible writing. It's also surprising. This is the same guy who wrote. Equus, and they're, they're very different. Everybody keeps their pants on. And... <laughs> Although that might have been good, actually, if I could. <laughs> um, so I just ordered a DVD. Magic. Do the lights go down when this goes on? Or... We can turn them off. Can you see why you can't? Yeah. See. And I'm going to enter. Too bad I don't have the whole play. We just could watch that. <laughs> Okay, I can't hear it. I just found a dog that was right. Join the suffering bureaucrat out of patience with a flamboyant Miss Dupe as she attends to fire her. Which letter is that? Is that the one who says I light up the corridors of the past as with a blazing torch? <laughs> no, this is the one from the lady in the green sweater. Dear Miss, I was the lady in the green last Wednesday afternoon to whom you explained the portrait of a boy wearing leaves in his hair. If I had not asked, I would never have learned that terrible story of the young heir murdered by his uncle with a garland of poisonous herbs. I had never realized that one would actually kill people through the scalp in that way. But <laughs> <laughs> well, the trust itself admits that the boy is in one's mysterious. <laughs> Oh, 
changing so he fits. People resist this sometimes. If you're writing nonfiction, if you're writing a memoir, if you're writing docudrama, yes, you might want Uncle Clyde to be there exactly as he is, but if, if not, you need to give yourself permission to change him. Uh, sometimes it helps if it's based on somebody you really want to make a big change. Change something big about them. Change the gender, change the age, so it's all of a sudden you're not always thinking Uncle Clyde when you write the character. Um, I had a student once who wrote a, a play about a friend of hers who, um, what, this was a college student again, I'm sorry. Um, they write some very good things, but, but um, it was a, a woman who had a really bad boyfriend, and in the first scene he was a really bad boyfriend, and in the next scene he was a really bad boyfriend, and in the third scene he was a really bad boyfriend, and said, see, here's the problem. We need to, first of all, understand why she's still with this guy by scene three or four. We need to know maybe how, what it was she saw in him. She said that there's nothing good in him because he's a really bad boyfriend. <laughs> I started to feel maybe her friend might have been close to home. Um, so the thing is, as an audience, we just think, why you spent that five scenes with this guy's a really bad boyfriend, why are, why are you still there? But he, but he was really bad, and I said, okay. I'll really give you a C. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Um, other than, unless you're writing an absolutely true story, it's okay to, to, to mix up the details and to change things up a bit. I'll be surprised at you to see what the next... Oh, that's fine. Um, Sometimes you have those scenes that are all dialogue, and it become, you get kind of talking head syndrome, where it's just people talking, 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 talking. Has anybody read Elizabeth George's book right away? You know Elizabeth George? Has anybody read her book? Just me? Okay, it's pretty good. Um, but she has a thing called, that she calls the talking head avoidance device, or the THAD, um, that, in which she gives a character something to do during the dialogue. Now, you don't want to just have it be anything. Um, like, oh, I'm folding laundry, so there's something to do. But you need to think about something that might sort of serve the story. So um, it might be something that you could use as a metaphor. It might be a skill a character has that will show up later on. It might be something they're afraid of that shows up later on. Um, it could be a particular object that they use that is going to show up later on. But think about what they might be doing that you, that you can use to sort of reinforce the story, too. She has her book... Deception on his mind, I think, was the first one. She mentions um, there's a, her, her uh, detective, Barbara Havers. You know, she's kind of like dumpy and stuff, and, and not very, doesn't get along very well with other people. And she has neighbors who are from Pakistan, a, a, a father and daughter. And the daughter has, shows her this jar that she's trapped a bee in, and that bee sort of becomes a metaphor then for being trapped and not being. In. Um, Who's read Wrinkle in Time? I hope it's more of you than Wrinkle in Time. Okay, good. Um, Madeline Lingle, you know, it starts out as a dark and stormy night, right? Again, there's a storm, and young Meg, who's 14, wakes up, goes downstairs, and her five-year-old brother is making, uh, heating up milk for cocoa. I I spent a lot of time around a four-and-a-half-year-old, and I'm not going to let him heat up milk. But anyway, it kind of lets you know a little bit about Charles Wallace, the brother. Um, so he's heating up milk because he knows Meg's going to get up and want hot chocolate. So he's already doing that. She says to him, uh, you know, there's too much in there. And he says, that's because mom's going to come in soon. So uh, uh, mom comes in then. So we learn a lot in that scene just from him heating up milk. We learn that he, is, first of all, he knows how, he knows they're close. He knows that Meg's going to get up. She doesn't like storms. 
he knows how she likes her um, her milk heated up because he said he don't like it when there's a skin on it. Really, who does? Because that's disgusting. Uh, he knows mom's coming, so we know that there's something about Charles Wallace that he's able to uh, to know what's going to happen. He's able to kind of read people's minds. He's a, one of my college students said a horrible thing about Charles. She's not very annoying, but she said it in more graphic terms than that. But, um, but we learn a lot, just, and all he's doing is making, uh, he's heating up milk for, for cocoa. Could they all sit at this table and have the same, oh, I knew mom would go, yeah, they could have it. Would it be as interesting? No. Would we learn the same things? We might, but only because they would just tell us, which I think might lead directly to, yeah, it does, good. Um, Oh, here's the other thing about character. Like some characters who might be pretty good writers aren't good with numbers. <laughs> so there is no five. Let's see, five is right. Um, there's no five. Um, and I went through this too. I didn't, clearly, I didn't even notice this. I went all through it. Oh, yeah, four. Yeah, it was the numbers. Um, so I, I, again, I talked to my friends, and she said it's that info dump thing that, that she thinks is a big problem. A character, on the first page they're on, they tell you uh, in uh, multiple paragraphs everything you need to know about them, everything they've done for the past 10 years. Um, it's kind of like those prologues in the old Greek plays where they come out, and, and now here's what's happened to this family for the last 700 years, and we'll tell you all about it. Um, you, you want to be careful with the exposition that you're not dumping them. We panic, don't we? We panic. I know playwrights do this all the time. Panic. There are things people need to know, so I'm going to tell you everything right now, as soon as you show up. Uh, but generally, we don't do that when we meet people. If you do, then you should go back and check that flaw thing we talked about earlier. But, um, you don't have to dump all the information on people right off the bat. Give them some time to, to learn it gradually. Think of, you know, it's that show don't tell thing. Shows are there ways to show us about the character? Absolutely. If you look back to Lettuce and Lovage, did you notice what she has on the shelf behind her? There are a whole bunch of pill bottles, and there's a box of Kleenex and stuff, so you might... She wouldn't necessarily... And I don't remember. Is she a hypochondriac? Does anybody remember from that? Is she kind of... Is she sickly? I don't remember. But there are all kinds of things you might deduce from just seeing that without her saying, well, I always feel like I'm sick and I constantly have a cold. She didn't have to tell us that, so... Um, don't know what that says either. I think it says... You fool, you forgot your notes. Um, <laughs> I think a big problem with characters is when they don't have a problem, when there's no conflict, or when we let them off the hook really easily. Um, we all have problems, we all have obstacles, we, we understand all of that, and we, for a character to come in and say, um, Aurelia and Juliet's the one I always use, Romeo and Juliet say, oh, we're in love, but our parents are having a feud, and their parents say, oh, kids, it's okay. Well, there's no play, right? We're going to call off the feud because you two youngsters, who were very young, in kind of a creepy way, are, um, are in love. There's no story. There has to, so it's about turning up the heat, making things harder for them, giving them obstacles, putting things in their way. Because if somebody doesn't have any problems, we're not very interested. What we want to see, we're not going to go to a movie, we're not going to read a book, we're not going to go to a play. Can you imagine people going to a movie two hours of people getting along? I'm going to say movie is people get along for two hours, they really enjoy each other, and I'm going to pay ten bucks to go to this movie and watch these people get along. Nobody's going to do that. Um, even if you think about, even sitcoms, there's a problem usually. Um, 
even Seinfeld, which is supposedly about nothing, wasn't really, because usually there was some kind of a, of a conflict. So there's, he's not storming out. He's, he's, he's doing a wonderful deed for me and feeding my meter. Um, and my car, by the way, doesn't have my notes in it either. Uh, and now that you brought your attention to him, I'm sure he loves that. So um, think about conflict more and more and more and more. Um, you can always take some out, but, but don't make it too easy on them. Because uh, we don't really care about, we don't care about people who solve their problems easily, because we don't solve our problems easily. So I thought we'd try an exercise, since we have time. So you'll need something to write on. If you want to do it, you don't have to do it, you can save it for later. Now I'm wandering around, it's even scary. We go to karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> and now show tunes. <laughs> I could probably turn the projector off because the projector is on. I know that. Do I Excuse me, I'm on the line. Is this the near projector or the far projector? You don't need to don't worry about it. I'll figure out switch buttons and see what happens. <laughs> Um, what did you do your 11th hour? Oh, we learned about how to operate the system. So, imagine this. this and this is one that I've used before. Here, this is one of those that you can't think about. You just can't think. You just need to write, okay? And we have trouble with that because we want to write the right thing, right? We want to write the right thing down. So there's no right or wrong. So just write. It's like that old, uh, what's her name? Natalie Goldberg thing about keeping your hand moving. So do that. Um, so imagine, first of all, that your character, think about a character you want to work with. If you don't have one you're working with now, just make one up. Could be me. Don't do that. Forgetful. Um, imagine that your character is carrying a purse or a briefcase or a backpack. And just for a second, think about what that, what that looks like. Got it? Now imagine that you have a table, you've picked up that purse or briefcase or backpack and dumped it upside down and dumped out all the contents. Make a list of everything you see on that table. Don't edit, just write.
So tell me this, if you look at your list, was there anything surprising? Anything you didn't expect? Anything weird? You don't have to tell us. Does anybody have anything you didn't expect? If you let yourself go with it, sometimes you, you'll find unusual things there. What you might want to do, I, some writers are real resistant to exercises. I tend to love them a lot because we want to write stuff that we can put right into the story. We want to put stuff that goes right in our book. We don't want to waste time doing the other stuff. But to me, that's all research. If I'm spending time, I do a lot of exercises with my characters because to me that's the same thing as any other kind of research I would do. So um, you might go back and look at, find an object that was that you weren't expecting. You might uh, write about how they got that object. Did they steal it? Did they borrow it? Did they find it? Did they inherit it? Did they buy it? Um, I think objects are real important actually with characters. And I usually have um, an object that one of my characters has that probably never makes its way into the play or into the book. Um, I, and sometimes, if you just let, it's the kind of thing you just have to let yourself go. I had a character who would, um, in a play that no one's ever seen, sadly, because I think it's really good. But, and so did my mother. But um, um, she has inherited kind of a rundown motel from her family. And she also uh, is, wants to be a ballroom dancer. That's like what she wants to do. So um, I started playing around with this exercise, and, I, and there was a key. And I, you know, this is that kind of, I love having a conversation with a room full of writers, because you can say this stuff that anybody else would think you're insane, right? And all of a sudden, she had a key, and she's not really there, and nobody saw her. But, um, and, but then she kept in her shoe, and I thought, well, that's an unusual choice for a dancer to keep a, because that would hurt. And, um, but then I did, uh, to me, I always knew that she had that. It really influenced how I wrote her, because there was a sort of pain that was with her all the time. And, um, and it never shows up in the play. We never, she never says, oh, here's this key I keep in my shoe. It reminds me of my family. And, uh, uh, but it really helped me a lot in writing. So think about what objects they have. What object is important to them? What would they uh, be devastated if they lost? What, what, what's the thing that can, they keep with them all the time, like a talisman? What is that thing? Um, you can also do the same exercise with going to, like, in your mind, not really doing, but like going to the grocery store with a character and following them around. I did that one time and it's writing all the stuff that's in their cart. And you think, oh, I'm gonna know that because I made up this character. And they'll, they'll be like, you know, they've got some grapes and some carrots and now they've got some coffee. And then there'll be something weird like, oh, and now they have five watermelons. I wonder why they do. So if you just let yourself go, sometimes you can find some stuff that Somewhere in your head, you know it's there, but you don't. You're not able to access it unless you just let yourself go with it. I, um, you can. Some people. Do any of you do character bios before you start writing? Like write a whole bio? No. Um, if you do. And some people do questions. I had a friend who has like something like 75 questions that she asks every character. If I did that, I would never do anything but ask questions. So at some point, you have to stop and start really working on it. But but some people find that helpful. Even those. Um, like those quizzes that you find in magazines sometimes if you ask your characters to answer those it's kind of interesting uh, anything that, that you might like a quiz you might do for yourself you could do it with a character and you can find out quite a bit clearly I spend a lot of time that's why I haven't written a play in years because all I do is ask them questions and write about their objects <laughs> that's not true but it's a little true um, I do a thing where I uh, sometimes will have a conversation between myself and the character. I, mean, I literally write myself and the character in my head. And usually I start with the character saying, um, 
what you need to know about me is, and then I just let him go. And you think again, oh, but I made up the character. That's silly. I, that, of course I know what they'll say, but I, I had one play, and I, wrote, and I did that with a character, and she was uh, quite angry with the way she'd been portrayed so far. And, and again, it's that stuff you know somewhere, but you're just not able to access it. And she was absolutely right about everything she said, because it was me. But... Um, but yes, that weird thing. So you can have a conversation. You feel like you can hear them talking. You know exactly what they look like. You, you, um, you feel like you can actually be in the room with them. There's one other thing on the list. I'll think of it. Nice weather. Anything? Here, been here in July before. This is a, a miracle. that's happening right now. Huh. Oh, I know. Uh, characters, this works a lot with two characters who are having a relationship and you're having trouble getting them to do anything. I sometimes will do an exercise where I take them and put them someplace else that has nothing to do with the piece I'm working on. So and it helps a lot if they're trapped somewhere. So it's two people in an elevator that's stuck. Two people in a highway motel in a blizzard. Two people... Um, stuck in their cars like they've got a flat tire and they're out on a country road and then because when they're stuck together when they can't get away they have to interact and you learn a whole lot that way there's um, Agatha Christie did that in that book that has two titles and then there were I think ten millenniums and then there were nine in the same book aren't they yes um, and they're on an island so they can't uh, is that the one with the island where the, the tide comes in and you can you can't get to it and the tide goes down I went there and I don't remember the name of it. Clearly, had a huge impact. Um, there's a um, play, a short play by a playwright named Mary Miller called Ferris Wheel, and it's two characters who are trapped on a Ferris wheel. It, it sticks, it stops, and they're at the top. And the woman is afraid of heights, and the guy really wants to smoke because he's nervous, but she doesn't want him to smoke, and tells him a whole story about how they saw pictures of lungs and it was horrible. And so. Not only are they stuck up there, so there's some conflict there, but they each have their own. She's afraid of heights. He wants to smoke. She doesn't want to smoke. They have to interact because they're on the Ferris wheel. They're not going to just... I mean, if, if they'd been on the bottom one, they wouldn't want them just would have walked away, but they were up at the top. So think about putting your characters somewhere where they can't get away, and they have, they have to interact. Questions? Yes. Um, a couple of characters that I think might bear discussion and that I have to watch out for and that I always tell my reading, my writing friends to watch out for. One is the Mary Sue, or if it's male, the Gary Stew. And that is the guy who is based on you and he is perfect. He does everything very, very well. He does it at a young age and everybody else in the story would drown in a rainstorm if Gary Stu hadn't been around to tell them right. to close their mouths and lower their heads. That's one. Another character to watch out for is the Wesley, named after Wesley Crusher on Star Trek. The character that the author is in love with and everybody else absolutely despises. A friend of mine showed me her novel the other day. I was one of her beta readers, and I told her, you have one problem with this book, and that is the guy that the woman falls in love with. I know you really like him, but I tell you, I'm telling you, and other people are going to agree with me, where I come from, we shoot men like that. Don't you come from here? <laughs> but, but anyway, those are two characters that authors often 
crimes that authors often commit that they should watch out for. There's a danger with loving our characters too much, I think, because then we're afraid to make them real. Mary Sue's funny because she used to be the university president here, too. But. <laughs> Where'd she go? Michigan. That's all. That will be on the final. So, um, Other questions? Yes. What a good question. Thank you. Um, yeah. A lot of research. I, my, um, one of my plays was about a woman who was a pilot, and I don't fly, and I don't want to. And actually, I went on uh, the internet and found a, this was a long, a long time ago, found a chat room for women pilots. And I went on and said, hey, could anybody talk to me about flying? And then you have to, you know, anything with the internet, you have to make sure you're not talking to a some third grader somewhere. Said, yeah, I can fly a plane. Um, but she was very helpful. There, there are also a couple of really good books. Um, Idiom Savant is one of them, and I forget that. Uh, talk the Talk, I think, is the other one. They have, it has um, slang from different professions and different interests, which is also useful. Uh, you have to make sure you're using them correctly. Uh, but people, I found, are really, really helpful about talking to you. I did it. One of my plays had a police officer in it, so I got to do a ride-along. And I have to tell you, you should all put a police officer in because then you get to do a ride-along because it's so much fun. Because we got to go really fast. Um, she kept saying, oh, I'm so sorry. And I said, no, it's okay. It's all right. Faster. Um, turn on the siren. Um, <laughs> but people are really good about talking about their professions, I think. Because it's a legal profession. Um, but, but yeah, I just asked them. Because I've, I've had a lot of people who have been willing to... I've talked to a lot of doctors, I've talked to a massage therapist, the, the good kind. Um, generally, people are real willing to do that. You just have to make sure they really know what they're talking about. But, um, and now you can just go on the internet and look up like writer slang, and it'll tell you, you can find a whole list of slang. But again, sometimes those things that go on there are kind of outdated. Like the theater ones are a lot of things nobody, in the book I have, it talks about. Um, People calling electricians Sparky, which I've never heard anybody call the lighting guy Sparky ever in my life. So some of them are kind of, it's funny seeing these electricians. Um, uh, I've never heard anybody say that. So you have to be cautious. Yes? Could you talk a little about character names? Are they important? I think they're very important, yeah. Um, one, sometimes I work with 7th and 8th graders, and one year they... Uh, all wanted to name their character Dick, which they thought was hilarious. Because <laughs> I didn't get it, you know. So, um, like also, they wrote one, a bunch of them wrote a play that involved a magic herb, which also they thought that was <laughs> I went to school in Iowa City in the 70s. Come on. Um, I think names are real important. And um, we just had that conversation in class, because like, somebody wrote a play that had, like, had you have to be careful to have they don't all start the same letter, for example. But um, but, yeah, but I think we we um, base a lot of what we think about somebody by their name. I think actually, and the name sort of has to fit them or not fit them. I use one of those name the baby books, which I find really helpful. And sometimes I'll know things like this character's name starts with a C, but I don't know what it is. Does anybody do that? Am I the only? Is that weird? Okay, okay, good. Um, it's also how I name my dog, but um, but I find those really helpful. And sometimes you can look for the you know they tell you what all the names mean, and and 
occasionally I've looked at that, and it doesn't really enter into the writing, except that I know what the character name means, so I might I might use that. But I, soap operas are always really good for character names because they were so. Um, did anybody watch All My Children? See again, everything everything's from TV. I do actually read books, and I go to plays. But, um, do you remember? Um, there was Billy Clyde Tuggle. Do you remember Billy Clyde Tuggle? He was a bad, he, he just died. He was married to Christine Baranski. We're going to have a moment here. With so anyway. Um, um, yeah, but he, you know, your name's Billy Clyde Tuggle. You're not going to be the hero, probably, right? He was kind of a, he was pretty shady. There was that family that was all kind of perfect, and their last name was Santos. Remember them? Saint. I mean, they, it, they're kind of, they were sort of, um, Obvious, but not really obvious with some of those names. But they, their soap opera names were always pretty good. I thought. Dixie I can't. was from the South. Dixie was from the South, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> of course she was. Didn't she go away and come back and like three times? Three times? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, this somebody who was a playwright who had um, recommended that a lot of his uh, students apply for soap opera writing jobs because one paid. I think there's only like one left on TV. Aren't there like two? On, um, but I only ever watched that one, honestly. That was, <laughs> we should talk later. Right? <laughs> um, but he said, you know, you got to write for an ensemble cast. You got to have these stories that went on for years and years and years and years. And it was actually really interesting as a writer to keep trying to come up with new things. Now, if you watched them, they didn't often come up with new things. It's like... What was that weird one where somebody got abducted by an alien and there was a there was some little kid who was uh, no it wasn't on my children some of this oh, okay yeah it was a test I now believe you that you only watch on my children um, but yeah I think names are very important and I spend a long time with them and sometimes I change them sometimes I don't even know the character name at first and I just use a, an initial or a letter. And sometimes you, you write it and you realize that that's not that person's name. Sometimes I go by syllables, like how many syllables are in a name. Other questions? Carol, I made it. I, um, it's a miracle. Um, I'm sure my dog is at home now reading my notes. <laughs> Why didn't she take these? Yes? Um, here's how, here's where I, th- I think you get a tip on that, um, Carrie. You've acted. Have you ever acted a character who's completely foreign to what you are? Oh. What, how do you do it? Um, oh my god. <laughs> I, um, well, when as an actor, you look at the words, you look at the dialogue, you believe things physicality and their history and. So yes. And so there's usually one thing. It can be, as you've talked about, your exercise on the objects in the backpack. You look for a, a, a hook. So it could be the shoes. It could be the way the character walks. It could be there's some hook into that character. And when you find that hook, the character will pop into your head. Did you hear any of this back there? No. It was really good. But, uh, yeah, I'll speak louder because I can object. Because I was an actor in a former life. Uh, you look for a hook. So there's some object, 
or the way a character walks, or the way a character talks, or a piece of clothing, or a cigarette butt, or the way they squash a cigarette butt with their heel, some object that speaks to that character, and then they'll pop into your head, and then the hard part will be getting them out of your head. You want them <laughs> or, you know, and if it's a character you don't really like, then it's too hard. You want to get them out of your head as soon as you can. But there's some hook. Did you hear that? And also, uh, Carrie, who I put on the spot, said, as an actress, she looks at the words, and I think you also think about and do everything you can to make sure that character... I mean, I would even look at a simple sentence. If you look at Lettuce and Lovage, is that the letter from the, per- the woman in the blue in the green sweater? No, it's from the person who said... Or, is that from the person who said, I light up the, the corridors of the passes with the blazing torch? No, it's from the person in the green sweater. So it's like looking at the way you would say it, and then think about completely the way somebody else might say the same thing. I also, um, I think it helps to find what part of you might be in them, even though they seem completely different. Uh, when I write a character that I think is completely different from who I am, there's still a little tiny piece of me in there somewhere. So find that and then try to grab onto that and then then work out from that. It's hard. It, it helps too, I think, if you make them again a different gender, if you make them a different age, you make them a different, like from a different part of the world, that helps too, uh, to kind of um, include yourself but then make them, make them somebody else. I, mean, I feel like I'm not saying this very well. And I wouldn't have even if I had my notes because I'm... Ooh, that's good too. Uh, what the other characters say about them. Look at the way other people respond to them. Look at the way they are with other people. So, um, Nancy Barry, are you walking in? Okay, just check. <laughs> yes, Patrick. Uh, do you remember in, uh, the, the great big guy that, that Yeah, I never saw the Green Mile, but I know who you mean. Oh, sorry. depressing in here. Um, I, another exercise I do that might be useful is I have um, I have people write a, a play that has three characters, it's usually with themselves, but sometimes with another character. So they write a scene that's a character at the age that they appear in whatever you're writing. A character who's that same character but younger and one who's a lot older. So it's all three the same people, but they're meeting at different points of their life, and, and they never say... Hey, I you look familiar to me. You know, you just see what because you learn a lot about where they. I, I think it's important to think about characters existing before your story begins and after your story is over, unless you kill them. But it, it, it helps to put them on sort of a, a longer timeline, so you think about where they came from and where they're going. So they aren't they don't just exist for that moment of your book or your story or play. They 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 exist in a, a more of a continuum. Is this recording me? Dear God. Yes. Um, if you're writing a memoir and obviously your characters are based on real people, do you do similar exercises to you suggest? I think you can. Actually, there, um, 
I just ran across a book that had really good memoir exercises in it, and I can't remember who wrote. It's not in my notes, but I can find out. It actually might be Natalie Goldberg. Does she have a memoir book out? Like old friend from far away, or far friend from old away, or old, old friends from older times, or something. Um, yeah, I still do exercises because I've been. I've actually working on a performance piece for myself, which some of you might have heard over the years. Um, and so I still do some of that stuff, even though it's me, and even though it's not fiction, I still do some of those exercises. It's horrifying. Other questions? Yes? That's a hard one. Because well, like, it's like that one I did I had to get rid of. And that's, I think, where you change something big about them, if you can. If you can change their gender, it helps sometimes. Um, if you can just, again, do that same thing where you look at how you would say something and then completely change it for them. But changing a big fact about them, um, age, uh, nationality, uh, it just like one of the big facts. If you can change that, that helps a lot. Or in my case, I just had to send her away to character heaven. It's tragic. Yes? Give them chemistry. I would do the I would do the one where they're trapped somewhere. Actually, I would I would trap them in an elevator. That's also a good exercise to do with somebody and their ex too. So really <laughs> but I would I would put them together somewhere they can't get away. Works in the movies. They have this, uh, and then they make a sequel. Yes. Just one suggestion for a character that looks a little bit too much like you. <clears throat> I find that you can get away with it quite often if you paint the portrait warts and all, if you give that character your bad characteristics as well as your good ones, then the reader will forgive you and will enjoy the character. And then everybody will know your faults. They're going to know everything about Yes? Thank you all for your abilities today.